Today, I'm joined by Maxwell Huffman and Michael Ashburn. They're both QA managers at Aspiratech. I want to start with defining quality assurance. Could one of you start by explaining what it is? So when I first joined Aspiratech, I was kind of curious about that as well. One of the main things that we do at Aspiratech, beside quality assurance, is we also give meaningful employment to individuals on the autism spectrum. I myself am on the autism spectrum, and that's what's initially attracted me to the company, quality assurance. In a nutshell, is making sure that products and software is not defective, that it functions the way it was intended to function. How would somebody know when they've, when they've met that goal? It all depends on the client's objectives, I guess. Quality assurance testing is always about trying to mitigate risk. There's only so much testing that is realistic to do. You know, you could test forever and never release your product, and that's not good for business. It's really about, you know, balancing, like, how likely is it that the customer is going to encounter Defect X? How much time and energy would be required to, to fix it? Overall, company reputation impact, there's all sorts of, of different metrics. Every customer is unique, really. They, they get to set the, the pace. Does the product work well? Is the user experience frustrating or not? That's always a bar that I look for. One of the main things that we review in the different defects that we find is customer impact and how much of this is going to frustrate the uh, customers. And when we're going through that analysis, is this cost effective or not? The uh, client, they'll determine it's worth the uh, cost of the uh, quality assurance and of the uh, fix of the software to make sure that that customer experience is smooth. When you talk to, to software developers now, a lot of them are familiar with things like they need to test their code, right? They have things like unit tests and, and integration tests that they're running regularly. Where does quality assurance fit in with that? Like, is that considered a part of quality assurance? Is quality assurance something different? We try to partner with our clients because the goal is the same, right? It's to release a quality product that's as free of defects as, you know, as possible. We have multiple clients that will let us know. These are clients typically that we've worked with for a long time and have sort of established a rhythm. They'll let us know when they've got a new product in the pipeline. And as soon as they have available software requirements, documentation, specs, user guides, that kind of thing, they'll provide that to us to be able to then plan, okay, you know, what are these new features? Uh, what defects have been repaired since the last build? Or, you know, it all depends on what the actual product is. And we start preparing tests even before there may be a, a version of the software to test. You know, now that's more of a, what they call a waterfall approach where it's kind of a back and forth where, you know, the client preps the software, we test the software. If there's something amiss, the client makes changes. Then they give us a new build. But we just as well, we work in iterative design or agile is a popular term, of course, where we have embedded testers that are, you know, on a daily basis interacting with uh, client developers to address, you know, to, to verify certain parts of the code as it's being developed. Because, of course, the problem with Waterfall is you find a defect and it could be deep in the code or some sort of linchpin aspect of the code. And then there's a lot of work to be done to try to fix that sort of thing. Whereas, you know, embedded testers 
can identify a defect or, a, or even just like a, a friction point as early as possible. And so then they don't have to, you know, tear it all down and start over. It's just, oh, fix that, you know, while they're working on that part, basically. So I think there's two things you touched on there. One is the ability to bring in QA early into the process. And if I understand correctly, what you were sort of describing is even if you don't have a complete product yet, if you just have an idea of what you want to build, you were saying you'd start to generate test cases. And it almost feels like you would be a part of generating the requirements, generating like what are the things that you need to build into your software before the team that's building it necessarily knows themselves. Did I sort of get that? I've been in projects that we've worked with the product from cradle to uh, to a grave. A lot of them haven't gotten all the way to a grave yet, but some of them, the amount of support that, that they're offering, it's reached that milestone in its life cycle where they're no longer going to address the defects in the same way. They want to know that they're there. They want to know what exists, but there, now there are new products that are being created. Right. So we are engaged in embedded testing, which is which is testing certain facets of the code actively and making sure that it's doing what it needs to do. And we can make that quick patch on that code and put it out to market. And we're also doing that at earlier stages with in, in earlier developments, where before it's an even fully formed design concept, we're offering suggestions and recommending that, you know, this doesn't follow with the design strategy and the concept design. So that part of embedded testing or unit testing can be involved at earlier stages as well, for sure. Of course, those you have to be very careful. You know, we wouldn't necessarily make blanket recommendations to a new client. A lot of the clients that we have have been with us for several years. And so, you know, you develop a rhythm, common vocabulary, you know, you know, which generally speaking, which goals weigh more than other goals and things like that from, from client to client or even coder to coder. It's only once we've really developed that shared language that, you know, we would say, by the way, you know, such and such is missing from blankety blank, say. Great example with a bunch of non-words in it, but I think you get the picture. When you're first starting to work on a project, you don't know a whole lot about it, right? You're trying to, to understand how this product is supposed to work. And what does that process look like? Like what should a company be providing to you? What are the sorts of meetings or conversations you're having? That, that sort of thing. We'll have an initial meeting with a handful of people from both sides and just sort of talk about both what we can bring to the project and what their objectives are, the thing that they want us to test, if you will. And if we reach an agreement that we want to move forward, then the next step would be like a, a product demo, basically. We would come together and we would start to fold in, you know, leads and some other analysts, you know, people that were might be a good match for the project, say. And we always ask our clients, and they're usually pretty accommodating, if we can record the meeting. You know, now everyone's meeting on Google Meet and virtually and so forth. And so that makes it a little easier. But a lot of our analysts, everyone has their own learning style, right? You know, some people are more auditory, some people are more visual. 
so we preserve, you know, the, the client's own demonstration of what it's either going to be like or is like or is wrong or whatever they want us to know about it. And then we, we can add that file to our, you know, secure project folder and anybody down the road that's being onboarded, like that's, that's a resource, an asynchronous resource that they can turn to, right? A person doesn't have to re-demonstrate the software to onboard them. Or sometimes, you know, by the time we're onboarding new people, the software has changed enough that we have to set those aside, actually. And then you have to do, you know, a live in-person kind of deal. And you really want to consider individuals on the on the spectrum, the different analysts and testers. They do have different learning styles. We do want to ask for as many different resources that are available to accommodate for that, but also to have us be the best enabled to be the subject matter experts on the product. So what we've found is that what we're really involved in is writing test cases and rewriting test cases to humanize the software, to really get at what are you asking this software to do that in turn is what the product is doing. A lot of the testing we do is black box testing and we want to understand what the original design concept is. So that involves the user interface design document, right? The early stages of that, if available, or just that dialogue that Michael was referring to, to get that common language of what do you want this product to do? What are you really asking this code to do? Uh, having recordings or any sort of training material is absolutely essential to being the subject matter experts and then developing the kind of testing that's required for that. And all sorts of different clients have different different amounts of test material, so to speak. I mean, everything from you know, a company that has their own internal test tracking software and they just have to give us access to it and test cases are already there to a piece of paper, like a physical piece of paper that they, you know, copied the checklist into Excel. And now like, these are the things that we look at, but of course there's always a lot more to it than that, but that at least gives us a starting point to sort of, to build off of and, you know, testing areas and sections and, you know, sort of thematically related features, things like that. And then we can develop, you know, our own tests on their behalf, basically. And when you're you're building out your own tests, what what would be the the level of detail there? Would it be a high level thing that you want to accomplish in the software, and then like absolute step by step, click by click? I hate to make every answer conditional, right? But it sort of depends on the software itself and what the client's goals are. One of our clients is developing a new screen sharing app that's for developers. Both work on the same code at the same time, but they can take turns typing, controlling the mouse, that sort of thing. And although this product has been on the market for a while, we started out with one of those checklists and now have hundreds of test cases based on both features that they've added, as well as weird things that we found. Like, oh, make sure sometimes you have to write a test case that tests for the negative, like the, the absence of a problem, right? So you make sure... X connects to Y and the video doesn't drop or you can answer the connection before the first ring is done and it successfully connects anyway or any host of, of options. So our test cases for that project, we have a lot of screen caps and stuff because a picture is worth a thousand words as the cliche goes. But we also try to describe the features, not just, you know, present the picture with an arrow, like click here and see what happens. Because again, everyone has sort of different 
data processing styles, and some would prefer to read step-by-step instructions rather than try to interpret, you know, some colors in a picture and what does this even mean out of context. And lots of times you'll end up potentially seeing test cases. They seem like they could be very easily automated because literally they're written all in code. And the client will occasionally ask us to do a test cycle scrub. Well, it'll ask us, okay, well, what can be automated within this, right? But one of the key things we really look at is to try to humanize that test case a little more away from that just basic automation. Lots of times that that literally involves asking, what are you trying to get out of this test case? Because it's fallen so much into the into the weeds that you no longer can really tell what you're really asking it to really do. So lots of times we will we will help them automate them, but also just give it the proper test environment and the, the proper steps. You'd really be amazed how many test cases just do not have the proper steps to get an, an actual expected result. And if it's written wrong at that basic manual level, you're not adding value. So that's one thing that we, that we really have found it's added value to the uh, clients and to their test cycles. A lot of people ask about automation because it's a very you know, sexy term right now. And, and it certainly has its place, right? But you can't automate new feature testing. It has to be an aspect of the product that's mature not changing from build to build. And you also have to have test cases that are mature that, you know, every little virtual or otherwise, you know, T is crossed and I is dotted or else you wind up having to do manual testing anyway because the computer just goes, oh, it didn't work. Because that's really all the, you know, the automated process can do is either it passes or it doesn't. And so then we have to come in and, and we have clients where we do plenty of that. Like, okay, they ran through the tests and these three failed, figure out why. And then they go in and start digging around and, oh, it turns out this is missing or this got moved in the latest update or something like that. That's an interesting perspective for testing in, in general, where it sounds like when a feature is new, when you're making a lot of changes to how the software works, that's when manual testing can actually be really valuable because as a person, you have a sense of what you want and if things kind of move around or don't work exactly the way you expect them to, but you kind of know what the end goal is, you have an idea of like, yes, this worked or or, no, this didn't. And then once that's solidified, then that's when you said it's easier to, to shift into automatic testing. For example, having an application spin up a browser and click through things or, or trigger things through code, things like that. You know, you have to get the timing just right because the computer can only wait in so many increments. And, if, you know, if it, if it tries to click the next thing too soon and it hasn't finished loading, you know, then, then it's all over. But that's actually the discernment that you were sort of referring to, the, the using your judgment when executing a test. That's where we really, we really do our best work. And we have some analysts that specialize in exploratory testing, which is where you're just sort of looking around systematically or otherwise. I personally have never been able to do that very well, but that's critical because those exploratory tests are always where you turn up the weirdest combination of things. Oh, I happen to have this old pair of headphones on. And when I switched from Bluetooth to manual plug, you know, I just disconnected the phone, the conference call altogether. You know, and who does that, right? But, you know, there's all, all sorts of different kinds of combinations, and, and, and who knows what the end user is going to bring. He's not going to necessarily buy all new gear 
right when he gets you know the new computer or the new software or whatever I feel like there's been a a, a kind of a trend in terms of testing at software companies where they used to commonly have in-house testing or in-house QA. It would be separated from development. And now you're seeing more and more of people on the engineering staff, on the developing staff, being responsible for testing their own software, whether that be through unit tests, integration tests, or even just using the software themselves, where you're getting to the point where you have more and more people who are engineers that maybe have some expertise or some knowledge in tests and less so people who are specifically dedicated to test. And so I wonder from your perspective, you know, a QA firm or just testers in general, like what their role is in in software development going forward. Having specialized individuals that are constantly testing it and analyzing the components and making sure that you're on track to make that end concept design come to life really is essential. And that's what you get with the quality assurance. It's like a whole other wing of your company that basically is making sure that everything you are that you are doing with this product and with this software is within scope and you can't be doing anything better as well. That's the other aspect of it, right? Because lots of times when we find a component and we found something that we've broken or we found a flaw in the design, we look at what that means bigger picture with the overall product. And we try to figure out, all right, well, does this part of the functionality, is it worth it to fix this part of the functionality? Is it cost effective, right? So lots of times quality assurance it comes right down to the to the cost effectiveness of the different patches. And lots of times it's even the safety of the product itself. It all depends on what exactly you're you're designing. But I can give you an, an, an example of a product that, that we were that we were working with in the past where we were able to get a component to overheat. Obviously that is a critical defect that needs to be addressed and fixed. That's something that can be found as you're just designing the product. But to have a specialized division that's just focused on quality assurance, they're more liable, they're more inclined, and that is what their directive is, is to find those sort of defects. And I'll tell you, the defect that we found that overheated this, this product, it was definitely an exploratory find. It was actually caught off of a test case that was originally automated. So, so we definitely were engaged in every aspect or a lot of the aspects of the engineering departments with this uh, product. But in the end, it was exploratory testing. It was out of scope of what they had automated that ended up finding this. That's where I really see quality assurance in this, in this field within software engineering really gaining respect and gaining momentum in understanding that, hey, these are really intelligent, potentially software engineers themselves, that their key focus is to is to testing our products and making sure that it's a design that, that is within scope. It's helpful to have a fresh set of eyes, too. You know, the person's been working on a product for, you know, day in, day out, for months on end. Inevitably, there will be aspects that become second nature may allow them to effectively like skip steps in the course of testing some end result when they're doing their own testing but you bring in you know a group of a group of analysts who know testing 
but don't know your product other than generally what it's supposed to do, you sort of have at it and and uh, you find all sorts of interesting things that way. Yeah, I think you, you brought up two interesting points. One of them is the fact that Nowadays, there is such a big focus on automated testing as a part of a continuous integration process, right? Somebody will write code, they'll check in their code, it'll build, and then automated tests will see that it's still working. But those tests that the developers wrote, they're never going to find things that there were never tests written for, right? So I think that whole exploratory testing aspect is interesting. And then Maxwell also brought up a, a good point. It sounds like QA can also not just help find what defects or issues exist, but they can also help grade how much of an issue those defects are so that the developers, they can prioritize, okay, which ones are, are really a, a big deal that we need to fix uh, versus what are things that, yeah, it's, I guess it's a little broken, but it's not not such a big deal. In a broader sense, there are certain whole areas of design. Right now, uh, Bluetooth is a really uh, big area that we've been working in. I'm the QA manager for the Bose client at Aspiratech, and Bluetooth is really a big thing that, that is involved in all of their different speakers. So obviously, if we find anything anything wrong with, with a certain area, you know, we want them to consider what areas they might want to focus more manual testing and less automation on. Right. And we're always thinking about feature specific in that sense to help the clients out as well. And analysts that are on the spectrum, they really have, it's fascinating how they tend to be very particular about certain defects and they, and they can really find things that are very exploratory, but they don't miss the uh, forest for the trees in the sense that they still maintain the larger concept design, funnily enough, where they can let you know, you know, is Bluetooth really the factor in this that should be fixed here, or is it something else? So it leads to different, to interesting avenues, for sure. Yeah, Bluetooth is really a bag of knots in a lot of ways. You know, the different versions, different hardware vendors, we work with Zebra Technologies. They make barcode printers and scanners and so forth. And, you know, many of their printers are Bluetooth enabled. But, you know, the question is, is it Bluetooth 3? Is it Bluetooth 4? Is it backwards compatible? And uh, a certain rather ubiquitous computer operating system is notorious for having trouble with Bluetooth management, whether it's headphones or printers or whatever. And in that instance, because we want to, you know, we're not testing the computer OS, we're testing the driver for the printer, right? So part of the protocol we wound up having to build into the into the test cases is like, okay, first go in, deactivate the computer's own resident internal hardware Bluetooth, then connect this, you know, third-party USB dongle, install the software, make sure it's communicating, then try to connect to your printer. For a long time an analyst would run into some kind of issue. And the first question is always, well, are you using the computer Bluetooth or is it third-party Bluetooth? And is it discoverable on? Is it uh, Bluetooth low energy? Because you don't want to print using Bluetooth low energy because it'll take forever, right? And then the customer thinks, oh, this isn't working. It's broke. You know, not even knowing that there's multiple kinds of Bluetooth. And, yeah, it's, a, it's hairy for sure. 
Yeah, and then I guess as a part of that that process, you're finding out there there isn't necessarily a problem in the customer's software, but it's some external case so that when you get a support ticket or a call, then you know like okay, this is another thing we can ask them to check. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 that's something that we've been definitely leveraged for to help out to try to resolve customer issues that come in as well and try to set up a testing environment that mimics that. And and we've occasionally integrated that to become part of our manual testing and some automated scenarios as well. So those have been interesting scenarios, having to buy different routers and what and what have you. And once again, it gets back to the cost effectiveness of it. You know, what is what is the market impact? Yes, this particular AT and T router or what have you might be having an issue, but you know, how many users in the in the world are really running the software on this, right? And that's something that everyone needs to, you know, that every company should consider when they're considering a patch in the uh, software. And something you you also brought up is, as a software developer, when there is a problem, one of the things that we always look for is we look for a, a reproducible case, right? Like, what are the steps you need to take to have this bug or this problem occur? And it sounds like one of the roles might be we get in a report from a customer saying, like, this part of the software doesn't work but I'm not sure when that happens or or how to get it to happen. And so as a QA uh, analyst, one of your roles might be taking those reports and then building a repeatable test case. Absolutely. There's lots of times uh, where clients have said, we haven't been able to reproduce this. See if you can. And, you know, we get back to them after some increment of time. And sometimes we can, and sometimes we can't. Sometimes we have to buy special uh, like headphones or some kind of, you know, try to uh, reproduce the environment that the client was using uh, in case there was some magic sauce interaction going on there. Our analysts on the spectrum, they are so particular in writing up defects, all the little details. And that really is so important in quality assurance is documentation for the entire process. That's one area where I think quality assurance really helps development in general is making sure that everything is documented, that it's all there on paper and the documentation is is solid and really sound. So for a lot of these defects, we've actually come in and I think up the standard a little bit where you can't have a defect written where, you know, the reproducibility is one out of one and it turns out this was a special build that the developer was using that no one else in the company was even using. So it's a waste of time to track this defect down. And that's based on the fact that it was a poorly written up report in the first place. So it can be fun to have to track down all the various equipment you need for it. And and analysts are really well suited for writing those up and investigating these different defects or errors that we we find. Sometimes they're not actually defects, they're just errors in the system. Uh, Tell them about the, the Bose guide that Bose wound up using, the guide that we had made internally. Yeah, there have been so many guides that we've ended up creating that have been like terminal access shortcuts, just different different ways to access the uh, system from a tester perspective that have absolutely helped just documenting all these things that engineers end up using. 
to test code, right? But lots of times, these shortcuts aren't well documented anywhere. So what Quality Assurance and what Aspiritech has done is we come in and we really create excellent training guides for how to how to check the code and what all the various commands are that have to be inputted and how that translates to what the more obvious user experience is, which is, I think, a lot of times what ends up being lost. It ends up all being code language, and you don't really know what the user experience is. It's nice to be able to have found that the guides that we've created when we show them to the client, because really we created them to make life easier for us right? And make the testing easier for us to make it more translatable. When you see all this different code that some of us are very well versed in, but other analysts might not be as well versed in the code or that aspect of it, right? But once you humanize it and you and you sort of say, okay, well, this is what you're asking the code to do. Then you have that other perspective of I actually can think of a better way that we could potentially do this. So we brought a lot of those guides to the uh, clients and they've really been they've really been blown away at how well documented all of that was. All the way down to the level of the uh, GUIDs of all the systems. We have very good inventory tracking and even being able to test and run internal components of the system. And that's why I bring up the uh, GUIDs. So a lot of the testing that we end up doing, or I wouldn't say a lot, but a portion of it is the sort of tests that installers would be running, the sort of functionality that only installers of systems would be would be running. So it's still black box testing, but it's behind the scenes of what the normal user experience is right? It's sort of the installer experience, for lack of a better word. And even having that well documented and finding errors in those processes have been quite beneficial. I I remember one scenario in which there was an emergency update method that we had to test, right? And this this was a type of method where if someone had to run it, they would take it into the store and a technician would run it. Right. So basically, we're, we're running software quality assurance on a technician's test for a system and a, the way a technician would update the system. And what we found is that what they were asking the technician to do was a flawed and complex series of steps. It did work but only one out of 30 times, and only if you did everything in a very particular timing, right? And it just was not something that was user-friendly for the uh, technician. So it's the kind of thing that we end up finding. And lots of times it requires the creation of a guide because they don't have guides for technicians to end up finding a defect like that. And the poor technician, you know, he's dealing with hundreds of different devices, whatever it is, you know, whatever the field is, whether it's phones or speakers or printers or computers or whatever, you know, this guy's not working with the same software day in and day out the way we have to sometimes. Again, because the developer is sort of building the tool that will do the stuff, you know, we're, we're dealing with the stuff it's doing. And so in a lot of ways, we can bring our own level of expertise to a product 
we can surpass, you know, the developer even. It's not like a contest, right? But just in terms of, you know, how many times is a developer installing it for the first time, like Maxwell was saying. But when we do out-of-box testing, we have to reset everything and install it fresh over and over and over and over again. And so so we wind up being exposed to this particular, you know, series of steps that the end user might only see a couple of times. But, you know, who wants their brand new shiny thing, uh, especially if it costs hundreds of dollars, you know, you don't want to have a lot of friction points in the process of finally using it. You know, you just kind of want it to just work as effectively as possible. If I understood correctly in, in Maxwell's example, that would be you had a, a physical product, like let's say a pair of headphones or something like that, and you need to upgrade the firmware or perform some kind of reset. And that's something that, like you were saying, a technician would normally have to go through. But as QA, you go in and do the same process and realize like this process is really difficult and it's really easy to make a mistake or just not do it properly at all. And then so you can propose like either, you know, ways to improve those steps or just show the developers like, hey, look, I have to do all these things just to, you know, just update my firmware. Um, you might want to consider like making that a little easier on on your customers. Yeah. Absolutely. And the other nice thing about it, Jeremy, is, you know, we don't look at a, at a series of tests like that as lower level functionality. Just because, you know, it's more for a technician to have run, it's, it's actually part of the update testing. So it's, so it's actually very intricate as far as the design of the, of the product. You find a defect in how this system updates, it's usually going to be a critical defect. We don't want the product to ever end up being a boat anchor or a doorstop, right? So that's what we're always trying to avoid. And in that scenario, it's one of those things where then we don't exactly close the book on it once we figure out, okay, this was a difficult scenario for the technician. We resolve it for the technician. And then we look at bigger scope. How does this affect the update process in general? You know, does this affect the uh, customer's testing, that suite of test cases that we have for those update processes? You know, it can, it can extend to that as well. Uh, and, and then we look at it in terms of automation too, to see if there's any areas where we need to fix the automation tests. It can be as simple as power loss during the update at exactly the wrong time. The system will recover if it happens within the first 50 seconds or the last 30 seconds, but there's this middle part where it's trying to reboot in the process of updating its own firmware, and if the power happens to go out, then you're out of luck. That does not make for a good reputation for the client. I mean, the first thing a customer that's unhappy about that kind of thing is going to do is tell everybody else about this horrible experience they had. Right. And and I can think of a great example, Michael. We had found a ad hoc defect. They had asked us to look in this particular area. There was a very rare customer complaints of update issues, but they could not find it with their automation. We had one analyst that amazingly enough was able to pull power at the right exact time in the right exact sequence. And we reported the ticket and we were able to capture the logs for this incident. And they must have run this through 200,000 automated tests and they could not replicate what this human could do with his hands. And it really amazed them. 
after we had found it because they really had run it through that many automation tests. But it does it does happen where you find those. We, we've been talking about, in this case, you were saying this was for Bose, which is a very large company. And I, I think that when the average developer thinks about quality assurance, they usually think about it in the context of, I have a big enterprise company, I have a large staff, I have money to pay for a whole bunch of analysts, things like that. I want to go back to where, Michael, you had mentioned how one of your customers was for a screen sharing application. We had an interview with Spencer Dixon, who's the CTO at Tupelo. I believe that's the the product you're referring to. So I wonder if you could walk us through like for somebody who has a business that's, I want to say they're probably at maybe four or five people, something like that. What's the process for them bringing on dedicated analysts or or testers, given that you're coming in, you have no knowledge of their software. What's the process there like? First of all, not to kiss up, but the guys at Tuple are a really great bunch of guys. They're very easy to work with. We have like an hourly cap per month, you know, to try to not exceed a certain number of hours. That agreement helps to manage their costs. They're very forthcoming and they really have folded us in to their development process. You know, they've given us access to their trouble ticket software. We use their internal instant messaging application to double check on, you know, expected results. And is this a new feature or is this something that's changed unintentionally? So when we first started working with them, there was really only one person on the project. And this person was, in essence, tasked with turning the Excel checklist of features into suites of test cases. And, you know, you you start with make sure X happens when you click Y. And then you make that the title of a test case. And, you know, once you get all the, the easy stuff done, then you go through the steps of making it happen. They offered us a number of very helpful sort of starting videos that they have on their website for how to use the software. By no means are they comprehensive, but it was enough to get us comfortable you know, with the basic functionality. And then you just wind up playing with the software a lot. They were very open to giving us the ramp up time that we needed in order to check all the different boxes, both ones on their list and then new ones that we found. Because, you know, there's more than one connection type, right? There can be just a voice call or there can be the screen sharing and you can show your local video from your computer camera so you can see each other in a small box. And you know, what order do you turn those things on and which one has to work before the next one can work? Or what if a person changes their preferences in the midst of a call? And, you know, these are things that fortunately Tuple's audience is a bunch of developers. So when their clients, their customers report a problem, the report is extremely thorough because they know what they're talking about. And so the reproduction steps are pretty good. And, but we still sometimes will run into a situation that they've shared with us, which like, we can't make this one happen. And I don't know, they've, I mean, the getting back to the Bluetooth, like they've even had customers where uh, I guess one headset used a different frequency than another one, even though they were on the same Bluetooth version. And when he changed this customer, well, I shouldn't say he, the customer, whoever, whomever they are, they changed from one headset to another. And, you know, the whole thing fell apart. And it's like, how do you even, you know, because you don't go to the store and look on the package and see, oh, this particular, uh, you know, headphone uses 48 kilohertz for their, at the outset, I didn't even know that that was a thing that could be a problem, 
right? It just you figured Bluetooth has its band of the telecom spectrum, and but you know anything's possible. So they gave us time to ramp up, you know, because they knew that they didn't have any test cases. And over time now, there's a dedicated team of three people that are on the project regularly, but it can expand to as many as six, you know, because it's a sharing application, right? So you tend to need multiple computers involved. And we've really enjoyed our relationship with Tuple and are, and are eagerly awaiting if there would be a Windows version, because there's so many times when we'll be working on another project even, and, you know, talking with the person and saying, oh, I wish I could, you know, we could use Tuple, because then I could click the thing on your screen and you could see it happen instead of just, you know. They are working on a Linux version, though. I don't think that's a, a trade secret. So that's that's in the pipeline. We're excited about that. And these guys, they pay their bills in like two days. No customers do that. They're really something. I mean, I think that's a sort of a unique case because it is a screen sharing application. You have things like headsets and, and webcams and you're making calls between machines. So I guess if you're testing, you would have all these different laptops or workstations set up all talking to one another. So yeah, I can imagine why it would be really valuable to have people or a team dedicated to that. And external webcams and, you know, whether you're like my Mac mini is a 2012, so it doesn't have the three band audio port, right? It's got one for microphone and one for headphone. So that in itself is like, well, I wonder how many of their customers are really going to have an older machine, but it wound up being an interesting challenge because then I had to, if I was doing any testing, I had to have a microphone sort of distinct from the headphones. And then that brings in a whole other nest of interactivity that you have to account for. Maybe the microphone's USB-based or, you know, all sorts of craziness. I'm wondering if you have projects where you not only have to use the client, but you also have to, to set up the server infrastructure so that you can run tests internally. I'm wondering if you do that with clients and if you do, like, what's your process for learning how do I set up a test environment? How do I make it behave like the real thing? Things like that. So the production and testing equipment is what the customers have, right? It's basically to create that setup, we just need the equipment from them and the user guides. And the less information, frankly, the better in those setups, because you want to mimic what the customer scenario is, right? You don't want to mimic too pristine of a setup. And that's something that we're always careful about when we're doing that sort of setup. As far as more of the integration and the uh, sandbox testing bed where you're testing a new build for regressions or what, or what have you that's going to be going out, we'd be connected to a different server environment. And with Zebra Technologies, their, their Zebra Designer printer driver they support Windows 7, Windows 8.1, Windows 10, and Windows Server 2012, 2016, 2019. And in the case of the non-server versions, both 32-bit and 64-bit. Because apparently Windows 10 32-bit is more common in Europe, I guess, than it is here. And even though you know Windows 7 has been deprecated by Microsoft, they've still got a customer base you know, still running, you know, don't fix what ain't broke, right? So why would you update a machine if it's doing exactly what you want, you know, in your store or business or whatever it is? And so we make a point of of executing tests in all 10 environments. It, it can be tedious because Windows 7, 
32 and 64 have their own quirks. So we always have to test those two. You know, Windows 8 and Windows 10 are fairly similar, but they keep updating Windows 10. And so it keeps changing. And then when it's time for their printer driver to go through the Windows logo testing, they call it, that's like their their quality labs hardware certification uh, that Microsoft has, which in essence means when you run a software update on your computer, if there's a new version of the driver, it'll download it from you know Microsoft servers. You don't have to go to the customer website and specifically seek it out. So we actually do uh, certification testing for Zebra uh, with that driver in all of those same environments and then submit the final package for Microsoft's approval. And that's, a, that's actually been sort of a, a job of ours, if you will, for several years now. And that's not something you take lightly when you're dealing with Microsoft. And, and actually, this sort of circles back to the, the writing the guides, because, you know, there are instructions that come with the Windows hardware lab kit, but it doesn't cover everything, obviously. And we wound up creating our own internal Zebra printer driver certification guide. And it's over 100 pages because we wanted to be sure to include every weird thing that happens, even if it's only sometimes. And be sure you set this before you do this, because in the wrong order, then it will fail and it won't tell you why and all sorts of strange things. And we've, of course, when we were nearing completion on that guide, our contact at Zebra was actually wanted a copy because, you know, we're not their only QA vendor, obviously. And so, you know, if there's anything that would help and they have other divisions too, you know, they do, uh, uh, they have a browser print application that allows you to print directly to the printer from a web browser without installing a driver. And that's a whole separate division. And, you know, but overall, all these divisions, you know, have the same end goal as we do, which is, you know, sort of reducing the friction for the customer using the product. That's an example of a a case where you said it's like a hundred pages. So you've got these test cases basically ballooning in size and, and maybe more specifically towards the average software project. As development continues, new features get added, the product becomes more complex I would think that the number of tests would grow, but I would also think that it it can't grow indefinitely, right? There has to be a point where it's just not worth going through, you know, X number of tests versus the value you're going to get. So I wonder how you how you manage that as things get more complicated. How do you choose what to drop and what to continue on with? It obviously depends on the client. In the case of Zebra, to use them again, you know, when we first started working with them, they put together the test suites. We just executed the test cases. As time went by, they began letting us put the test suites together because, you know, we've been working with the same test cases and, you know, trying to come up with the system. So we sort of spread out the use instead of it always being the same number of test cases. Because what happens when you get when you execute the same tests over and over again and they don't fail, that doesn't mean that you're you fixed everything. It means that your tests are worthless eventually. So they actually, a couple of summers ago, they had us go through all of the test cases, looking at the various results to evaluate like, okay, if this is a test case that we've run 30 times and it hasn't failed for the last 28 times. Is there really any value in running it at all anymore? So long as that particular functionality isn't being 
updated because they update their printer driver every few months when they come out with a new line of printers. But they're not really changing the core functionality of what any given printer can do. They're just adding like model numbers and things like that. So when it comes to like the ability of the printer to generate such and such barcode on a particular kind of media, like that only gets you so far. Some printers have RFID capability and some don't. And so then you can you get to kind of mix it up a little bit depending on what features are present on the model. So deprecation of worn out test cases does help to mitigate, you know, the ballooning test suite. I'm sure Bose has their own approach. Absolutely. There are certain features that might also fall off entirely where you'll look at how many users are actually using a certain feature. Like Michael was saying, you know, there might not be any failures on this particular feature, plus it's not particularly being used a lot. So it's a good candidate for being automated, right? So we'll look at cases such as such as that, and we'll go through uh, test cycle scrubs. We've had to do a series of update matrices that, that we've had to progressively look at how much of the market has already updated to a certain version. So if a certain part of the market, if 90% of the market has already updated to this version, you don't you no longer have to test from here to here as far as your update testing. So that's another way in which you can in which you slowly start to reduce test test cases and coverage. But you're always looking at that with risk assessment in mind right? And you're looking at, you know, who are the end users that, what's the customer impact if we're pulling away or if we're automating this set of test cases? So, you know, we go about that very uh, carefully, but we've been gradually more and more involved in helping them assess what test cases are the best ones to be manually run, because those are the ones that we end up finding defects in time and time again. So those are the areas that we've really helped Rather than having, you know, because lots of times clients will, if they do have a QA department, you know, the test cases will be written more in an automation type language. So it's like, okay, why don't we just automate these test cases to begin with? And it'll be very broad scope where they have everything is written as a test case for the overall functionality. And it's just way too much, as you're pointing out, Jeremy. And as features grow, it just that just continues on. It has to be whittled down in the early stages to begin with. But that's how we help out to finally, you know, help manage these cycles to get them in a more reasonable manual testing cadence, right? And then having having the automated section of test cases, have that be, you know, the larger portion of, of the overall coverage as it should be in general. So it sounds like there's this this process of you working with the client figuring out what are the test cases that haven't brought up an issue in a long time or the things that get the most or the least use from customers, things like that. You, you, you look at all this information to figure out what are the things that for our manual tests we can focus on and try to push everything else, like you said, into some automated tests. So if over time we're starting to see these trends with older test cases or simpler test cases, you know, if we notice that there's a potential we'll bring that to the client's attention and we'll say we were looking at this batch of you know tests for basic features and we happen to notice that they haven't failed ever or in two years or whatever would you consider us dropping those at least for the time being 
see how things go. And, you know, that way we're spending less of their time, so to speak, you know, on the whole testing process. Because as you pointed out, like, the more you build a thing, the more time you have to take, you know, to test it from one end to the other. But at the same time, a number of our analysts are OAST 508 trusted tester certified for accessibility testing using screen readers and things like that. It's interesting how many web applications, you know, it, it just becomes baked into the bones, right? And so, you know, you'll be having a, a, a team meeting talking about yesterday's work. And somebody will mention, you know, when I, when I went to such and such page, you know, because this person happened to use uh, stylus to change the custom colors of the web page or something like that. I'll say, you know, really, it was not very accessible. There was light green, there was dark green, there was light blue, like I can, you know, and so I used my style sheet to make them red and yellow. And you see enough of that kind of stuff. And then that's an opportunity to grow our engagement with the client, right? Because we can say, by the by, you know, we noticed these things. We do offer this as a service. If you wanted to fold that in or, you know, set it up as like a one-time thing, even, you know, it all depends on how much value it, it can bring the client. You know, we're not pushing sales, trying to oh, always get more whatever, but it's just about when you see an opportunity for improvement of the client's product or, you know, uh, helping uh, better secure their position in the market or, you know, however it, however it works or could work to their advantage, you know, we sort of feel like it's our duty to mention it as their partner. We also do data analysis you know, we don't just do QA testing. I know that's the topic here, of course, but that is another another way where, you know, our discerning analysts can find one of our products or one of our clients, rather. We do monthly call center, like help desk calls. We analyze that data in aggregate and, you know, they'll find these little spikes, you know, on a certain day, say, or, or a, a clutch over a week of people calling about a particular thing. And then we can say to the, to the client, you know, did you push a new feature that day? Or was it rainy that day? Or, you know, I mean, it could be any, you know, and maybe the client doesn't care, but, but we see it. So we say it and let them decide what to do with the information. The comment about accessibility is really good because it, it sounds like if you're a company and you're building up your product and you may not be aware of the accessibility issues, you have it tested by someone who's using a screen reader, you know, sees those issues with contrast and, and, and so on. And now the developer, they have like these, these specific actionable things to do and potentially even move those into automated tests to go like, okay, we need to make sure that these UI elements have this level of contrast, things like that. You know, and there's different screen readers too. You know, the, the certification process, like with the government, to become a trusted tester uses one particular screen reader named Andy. It's an initialism. But there are others. And, you know, then it's on us to become familiar with, you know, what else is out there. Because it's not like everyone is going to be using the same screen reader, just like not everyone uses the same browser. I think that clients realize that, yeah, we do have a good automation department, but is it well balanced with what they're doing manual QA wise? And I think that's where we often find there's a little bit lacking that we can provide extra value for, or we can boost what is currently there. Our employees are quality assurance analysts. They're not testers. They don't just come in, read the script, then Pokemon Go afterward. 
we count on them to bring that critical eye and everyone's own unique perspective when they go to use any given product, pay attention to what's happening. You know, even if it's not in the test case, you know, something might, you know, flash on the screen or there might be this pause before the next thing kicks off that you are waiting for. And that happens enough times and you kind of notice like there's always this lag right before the next step, you know, and then you can check that out with the developer. Like, is this lag? Do you guys care about this lag at all? And, you know, sometimes we find out that it's unavoidable because something under the hood has to happen before the next thing can happen. And even asking those questions, we found out fascinating things. Like, you know, why is there this lag every time when we run this test? You know, we never want to want to derail a client too much. You know, we're always very patient for the answer. And sometimes we don't, you know, we might not get the answer. But I think that that does help build that level of respect between us and the developers, that we really care what their code is doing. And we want to understand, you know, if there is a slight hiccup, what's causing that slight hiccup? It ends up being fascinating for our analysts as we are learning the product. And that's what makes us want to to really learn exactly what the code is doing. And even though I'm not a developer, when I first started at Aspiratech, I worked on Bose as well. And I really enjoyed just watching their code scroll down the screen as, you know, the machine was booting up or the speaker was updating because you can learn all sorts of interesting things about what's happening, you know, that you don't see normally. You know, there's all sorts of weird inside jokes in terms of like what they call the command or, you know, oh, there's that same spelling error where it's only one T or you kind of get to know the developers in a way. Oh, so-and-so wrote that line? We always wondered, because there's only this one T in that word. It's supposed to have two T's. And, you know, and they say, oh, yeah, we keep giving them a hard time about that, but now we can't change it. So we have fun. If people want to learn more about what you guys are working on or about Aspiritech, where should they head? www.aspiritech.org is our, is our website. Head to there, uh, give you all the information you need about us. We also have a LinkedIn presence that we've been trying to leverage lately. Talk to our current clients. I mean, they've really been our biggest cheerleaders, and the vast majority of our of our work has come from client referrals. So, I mean, Tuple was, is an example of that too. You know, they were referred by a client who was referred. You know, we're very proud of that. You know, it speaks volumes about about the quality of our work and the relationships that we build. And and uh, you know, we have very little customer turnover in addition to very little staff turnover. And and that's because we invest in these relationships and it seems to work for both sides. Michael, Maxwell, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Jeremy. It's great talking to you. Thanks for having us.